0: We moved here on June 25th, and um, let me move this up. And for the last two months, this church has been our home. For the first couple of weeks, we had some things to do, and then recently we we also had a, a week where I preached at another church, and then, um, and then our family had COVID go through the house, and so we've been gone for a few weeks. But uh, this is our home church, and uh, we… We really couldn't be more thankful for the uh, reception that uh, you've given to Mandy and me, and our kids involved in the youth group has been uh, just a a wonderful time. So, thank you for that. And also, thank you, Ben, for making a couple of comments about uh, 9-11 and the significance of that as a transforming event for our our country, for us individually, really for the world. And um, uh, I'll I had planned to say a little bit, but I'll, I'll leave it with what Ben had said. Let me pray, and then we'll read our text from Acts chapter 11. O Lord, we thank You that You have called us to be Your people, that we have not come here this morning out of our own strength, but because of Your, your Spirit that works in our hearts and minds. Whether we feel near to you or feel far off from you, whether we consider ourselves a part of your kingdom or ones on a journey considering the claims that Jesus has made about Himself, will you speak to us now by the power of your Word and the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Continuing a little bit with the theme that Roger's been preaching from for quite a while, we're looking at the book of Acts. Of course, you've been in the book of Luke, same author, the physician Luke, companion of Paul, and the story of Jesus' ministry in His earthly ministry for those three years, His resurrection, and then continued by the work of His Spirit that He pours out in His church, and the gospel expands to the world. The text for today is Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 is a very short portion of the greater story that's going on in the book of Acts, and in particular, the chapter 10 tells the story of a dramatic conversion of a man named Cornelius who is a soldier, a Roman soldier, officer in charge of a hundred soldiers in the uh, provincial capital of Caesarea overseeing the work of, uh, of, of much of that region who becomes a Christian by the ministry not of... Paul, who's just been converted, of course a minister to the Gentiles, but the apostle Peter, companion of Jesus, and the dramatic transformation of Peter's heart. I'm just going to read this portion of nine verses, but then we're going to refer a lot to the bigger story so that we can get the picture of what God's doing here. Verse 1, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat, But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. My habit is to say, the grass withers and the flower fades, and to have you respond, but the Word of God stands forever. So will you do that with me? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. Of course, from Isaiah and First Peter quotes. The story Peter is referring to is the conversion of Cornelius, this Roman centurion. I've known one person named Cornelius in my life. He was a friend who has almost mythical properties in my mind. I I think he moved away from our neighborhood sometime in elementary school because I remember playing with him, but I don't remember when he left or what the the circumstances were of it. I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan in a smaller kind of pseudo-suburban very lower middle class kind of community, but down the street from us there were some apartments. Everything else was houses, but the apartments were there, and everybody knew the the people who lived in the apartments didn't make as much money as the people who lived in the houses. Cornelius was black. I presume he's still alive. He was about my age. We lived in different worlds, but we played together frequently as kids do, not thinking about much of the cultural differences. His nickname, of course, was Corny. I don't know if any of you know him by name Cornelius. I've never found anybody else in life named Cornelius, but it's kind of surprising because this Cornelius in the Bible plays a central role in the expansion of the gospel in God's kingdom. It's really an interesting name. It's fascinating because, as culturally divided as my world was, from Cornelius' just down the road, down the block, Peter's world was entirely culturally removed from Cornelius, the Roman centurion. The book of Acts is a book of the gospel continuing to press through cultural barriers and bring the gospel, God bringing the gospel, to the entire world. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 talks about the gospel Going, beginning in Jerusalem and then expanding to Judea and then Samaria, the region up to the north of it, culturally different, and then to the ends of the earth. And it progressively tells of how God is doing that in breaking through these cultural barriers. And probably no cultural barrier was more significant for the Jewish people than the practice of what they ate and who they ate with. Now, in your bulletin inserts, I listed out this long list from Leviticus 11. There's another one in Deuteronomy that didn't even fit in the bulletin of the food laws and restrictions that God set forth. And the people, uh, the Jewish people, they, they knew these laws front and back. And it prevented a lot of people from interacting with a lot of other people. And this story is not just abrogating those food laws, not just getting rid of it, but it's telling the story of what it took for Peter and then the other Jewish believers, the disciples of Jesus, Jesus, to come to a place where they believed that God was really doing something, calling them to something in a way that was dramatically different than anything they had practiced in all of their life. Now, this isn't the only story in Acts where this happens. In fact, the the last few months as we've been preparing to plant this church and thinking about how does the gospel impact a new place, where, where do we see in Scripture the most dramatic examples of God coming into people's lives and working conversions and transforming people, of course, the place that first comes to mind for for most of us is the book of Acts. And we can go to the book of Acts and look for a how-to manual on how to do evangelism or how to build up a church and equip a church. But but when we come to the book of Acts, God lowers our expectations and He he reminds us that He's not about publishing user manuals or or instruction booklets. It's not a book of Ikea instructions that's presented without language and pictures so that everybody could understand. Rather, God tells His story of how people change by telling those stories, by communicating what's happening, and He does it in a way that communicates in language that people can understand, unlike most Ikea pamphlets. And so, what's been impacting most as I study through the book of Acts is the role of this, these stories that God is telling, Luke is writing, that God is telling, that God is working, the, the stories, and then the other thing that is consistently at work in all these stories is the work of the Holy Spirit. Of course, the gospel is being proclaimed. The work that Jesus had done and it continues to do is being explained. And it's being explained in reference to the Old Testament scriptures, so that the people can understand how Jesus fulfilled all those promises of the Old Testament. But over and over again, I've been struck by the role of story and spirit. Story and spirit just keeps on coming up. And the Presbyterian in us gets a little bit uncomfortable when we talk about spirit, especially the Holy Spirit in Acts, because in this story, as in most of the stories, you have weird phenomena like speaking in tongues that… You probably are wondering what I'm going to do with, if you're familiar with this story, it's uh, mentioned in in chapter 10, but we're going to talk about that a little bit. In fact, the, the organization that I want us to follow is simply, what is the story that's being told and what is the work that the Spirit is doing? And then, what are some of the implications for us as a church, people of God? Because, of course, Not everything from the story is readily applicable. We don't take the book of Acts and say, well, if it happened in Acts, it needs to happen in our lives. In fact, one of the most significant things that's going on in the book of Acts is that God is transforming the way that He is engaging the people with the truth of His word, the truth of His person. In a way that needs it needs gen, dramatic change, but also gentle leading of the people. And so the transformation, the conversion that Cornelius experiences in his household is really secondary in this whole story to the transformation that God is working in Peter and the people that he goes back and he communicates with in Jerusalem. And this is not an insignificant thing. Think about just the real estate that this story takes up, that this whole experience takes up in the book of Acts. It's all of chapter 10, which is a long chapter. It's half of chapter 11. And then again in in chapter 15, you've got this council coming together to consider some of the implications, some other things as well, but some of the implications of what Peter experiences here and goes back and communicates. To be three chapters of the book of Acts, that's a lot of important real estate that we need to consider. So, let's look at the story first. I need to tell more of the story, right? Peter has gone back to Jerusalem. He's recounting things as they as he experienced it. In fact, he's telling everything from his perspective now. But if you go back to chapter 10, the story begins with this man, Cornelius. In just the first two verses, if you read those with me, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Caesarea was this capital city of the region… That was a newly constructed city by the Romans. If you know something about the geography of Israel, in the Mediterranean Sea, there's no natural port. Now, we just moved here from San Diego. San Diego is a natural port that uh, as soon as people were in America sailing ships, they would use the harbor of San Diego because it was a large natural port. If you go to Israel, you go up and down the coast, there's no natural port. And so, Herod the Great built large concrete stone uh, wave breakers so that there could be a port for this region. To, to In fact, it's fascinating. You go there, and archaeologically, these things have sunk into the, the ocean, but they're still there. You can see, the, see them underwater. And in this place, he builds a capital city where, where things are controlled. And Cornelius, Cornelius isn't uh, from the region. He's from Italy and he's sent to this region to oversee. A a, a, a centurion is over a hundred soldiers. He's sent to this region so that he can oversee these hundred soldiers, so that they can subdue the people. Some of it is winning their hearts and minds, but also it's largely militarily enforcing the Roman rule on these people. Now, Cornelius also has a soft heart to God. He prayed regularly, continually, it says. In fact, on the, at the ninth hour of the day, that is at three o'clock in the afternoon, he's praying and he sees his own vision. He was also somebody who respected the poor. He gave alms to the poor. And as the story unfolds, we learn that he sees a vision And the Lord, through a messenger, speaks to him. He says, Cornelius, God has seen the good things that you're doing, your righteousness. He says, I want you to send to the city of Joppa, 30 miles to the south, and have Simon Peter come to you and tell you how you're to be saved. Now, Cornelius is an Italian, he's a God-fearer, but he's not taken that step to become a full Jewish convert. And what that means is that he still eats the animals that Jewish people didn't, pigs and various other things. And also, he's probably not been circumcised. The two most apparent marks of Jewish cultural identity He's not taken the final step toward. We aren't given the reasons for it. You can imagine some of the reasons. Part of it is it's probably even a more significant cultural step to identify with the Jewish people when he really needs to still be identified with the Roman army. That's probably the biggest thing here. But he is, he is sensitive to the God who made him. And at the same time that he is getting this vision for having someone come to him, specifically, Simon Peter from Joppa, God's giving Peter his own vision. And Peter described that vision, what we read today. He saw a sheet being descended containing all of these animals, some of them being unclean. In the vision, through the vision, he hears the words, kill and eat. And Peter, unsurprisingly, to anybody who would have read this, says, I- I've never done this, Lord. This is surely a test of my faithfulness. I cannot do this. And the, the voice says again, kill and eat. Three times he hears this voice, kill and eat, and as he's having this vision, the three messengers that Cornelius sent knock on the door, and they say, Cornelius, the Roman centurion who Peter probably had heard about, who had a reputation for being good, yet still had pigs' food in his house, or pigs, uh, the, the food of, uh, of unclean food in his house… Peter says, I I will go with you. I've just had this vision. Now, the Jewish people, they could have Gentiles in their house. They could have other people come in, and that was a part of regular hospitality. It was commanded in the Old Testament to show hospitality to the foreigner, those who were far off. But they would never go into the house of somebody who was unclean. This was why Jesus had... A lot of criticism by the, from the, by the Pharisees as well, when Jesus would go into the house of known sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and the Pharisees say, "You're eating not just with these people, but you're making yourself unclean." And Jesus has already challenged this notion of what's clean and unclean back in the Book of Marks. Mark, he says, he says, "You're misunderstanding what's clean and unclean," but he doesn't explain it in the fullness that we see in this passage. And it begs this question. What, first off, what was unclean? And the second question, why? Why were these things considered unclean? Were they just sort of arbitrary rules that God gave to the people that, that helped prove that they were really listening to Him? Or did they have some other purpose in God's full economy to communicate something of how He's working in the people? If you look at your insert and read through some of those things, let me just read the first couple of verses there or turn back to Leviticus chapter 11. What are some of the things that were considered unclean? Speak to the people, verse 2, of Israel saying, these are the living things that you may eat among the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts of the hoof, uh, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven foot and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it's unclean to you. The rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it, it's unclean to you. The hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it's unclean to you. The pig, it's unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses; they are unclean to you. These you may eat: of all the waters, everything in the waters that the fish that has fish and scales with. Whether in the seas or the rivers, you may eat, but anything in the seas and the rivers that does not have fins and scales, the swarming creatures, you, you, uh, you, is detestable to you. It goes on. I'm not going to read all of that, of course. And here's the question, why? And a lot of people have come up with different theories and these theories go back as far as the time that they're given and even in the New Testament to help. But some people just say, well, what the, the, it's for hygiene. Of course, pigs carry more disease than other animals, and so uh, he was just protecting them before they knew how to uh, properly treat the meat. <coughs> but that breaks down very quickly because many of the animals that are listed are, are not particularly hygienic, and, and, uh, and some of the ones that, that are listed uh, are, are pretty, pretty clean. Another one is, is referred to as the cultic explanation, and that's because certain other religions use those animals in their own worship services, and so these things were, were considered associated with the, uh, the, the, the pagan practices or the other worship, and so God was kind of separating those out. Those out. And another one is, is, is a, a moral Explanation. Well, the the pigs they have awful hygiene practices in general. They just have bad habits, and so we're we're not going to do those. But but those that chew the cud, they 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 they, they practice things better. And, and all of these theories, at least these three theories, they 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 fail at some point because of the extensive list of things that are offered. But there's one thing, and this this was kind of shocking when I first heard it, first read about it years ago. It was uh, presented by uh, uh, an Old Testament scholar named Jay Scholar, He was one of my professors in seminary and uh, an expert on the book of Leviticus. Of all the people, of all the things you're going to study, he chose to study Leviticus. And God bless him because Leviticus is the graveyard of almost every one of our Bible reading plans. <laughs> and if you even got to chapter 11, you're doing well. But He so helpfully communicated something that, that, that opened a world of the Old Testament to me that I think is essential for us to understand, to recover our ability to read the Old Testament. And I'll summarize it by saying that God speaks the language that people understand. Of course, we see that in the book of Acts. with speaking, of tongues at Pentecost, speaks the language people understand. You see it multiple times where, where people are speaking in, in, in language, but, but take it another step further. He speaks in concepts. Jesus, of course, uses illustrations for the people to see. And in the Old Testament, over and over, God is using concepts that people can understand to explain spiritual truths that are beyond our capability to understand. And what Jay Sklar was explaining to, to us as a class, he's written it in a very helpful book. He's written multiple books on Leviticus. Now, I highly commend those books. He said that the people in that time and place, especially the Israelites coming out of Egypt and seeing the different practices of religion, there was a general concept of things that the people avoided and things that the people didn't. They considered clean and unclean. And while this might not have been consistent across every culture, what God is using and selecting these animals and telling them is He's communicating that there's a deeper spiritual concept of things that are clean and things that are unclean, and it, it taps into something that is intuitive to you. You have this concept already that some things are unclean. I should stay away from those. And some things are clean. And when you look at the book of Leviticus and you're asking, why is God doing this and certain other things that just seem odd and awkward, understand that the people already had this sense like these things, they're, they're difficult. They they're, They have this general uncleanness to it. And when you think, oh, those things seem unfair, understand that God is unveiling to the people a little bit at a time in a gracious way this much deeper spiritual truth of how spiritually unclean this people was, that He was calling to be His own, that He was setting up His camp right in the middle as they wandered through the wilderness, that He was building a temple, that He was calling His own. He was communicating to them that they were not clean using concepts that they could understand so that they could understand not just that they were unclean, but how He was and would make them clean. And you come to the sacrificial system, and you see how that unplays. You still say, it doesn't make sense. Why would the blood of an animal cover until you get to the blood of Jesus? And something that otherwise would have been a, 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 an awful foreign concept associated with pagan worship, human sacrifice, is now explained to the people through the Old Testament Word, the revelation of God, through concepts so they could understand how Jesus' righteous, perfect blood would bring them cleansing in a way that wasn't to be emulated By us. We weren't to offer any more human sacrifices, but in a way that only God could do it. And the story unfolds of how that sacrifice is not just making the Jewish people saved, but that, that that sacrifice is good for all of humanity, is extended to all of the nations. Dennis Johnson, one of my friends and mentors in California, professor, describes Israel's diet. He says, Israel's distinctive diet was a visible sign of its holiness, its separateness as the people of God. To eat meat from forbidden animals or meat prepared in forbidden ways was to defile oneself in the presence of the holy God by disregarding the boundary He had marked around His holy people. You see, God had described Himself as holy, He had described the Jewish people as having been made holy by what they ate and what they didn't eat. But now, in the book of Acts, that's expanding out to the Gentiles and all these people who understand, understood themselves as being holy and separate, were now being challenged to do away with something that was central to their identity, But the people already had some concept, some language that God was going to do this, and it was the work of Pentecost. In chapter 2, the book book of Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God came down and was speaking the truth of the gospel through the apostles in different languages to the nations that had gathered around that place. And this story continues the work of Pentecost, and not just because if you look in chapter, chapter 10 toward the end of that, you see that the people start speaking in tongues and praising God. That was a continuation but at the time of Pentecost, it was a bunch of the Jewish diaspora who had come together in Jerusalem and other converts from other places who had taken that final step come together in Jerusalem and they heard the gospel being preached in their own languages. And now, pressing that still further, the gospel was going to Cornelius, somebody who hadn't been converted. Now it explains, Peter explains to the other people, this confirms that the gospel is for the Gentiles. Verse 18 in chapter 11 is a summary statement. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The food laws didn't need to be respected anymore. They had been abrogated, as had circumcision, and they were wrestling through that. And Peter... Who had been there at Pentecost, who had spoken the other languages by the, the Spirit of God at work in him, was still wrestling with how this could possibly be, as were the people in Jerusalem. Now let's consider the work of the Holy Spirit here. Will you look at with me at chapter 10, verse 44? I'm sorry we didn't print this in the bulletin there. I hope some of you have it on your, in a Bible or have a, a phone with you that you can look at. as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then he asked them to remain for some days. Now, what's happening here? But first, I, I just need to bring this up because the Holy Spirit is always actively at work through these processes, through these steps in Acts, and we need to understand how the Spirit is working and what, what he's doing and, and why it's significant. Do you notice that two things happen that evidence the work of the Holy Spirit? Do you notice the the first one you saw, because everybody's asking the question, what's he going to say about them speaking in tongues, right? The, The second one is that they were extolling God. They were praising God. Let's take the second one first. The second one is very straightforward. The only way that somebody who doesn't know God praises God, recognizes that God is the one to be worshiped, is that their heart is transformed, their heart is turned. And all these people were praising God. But the first one, or the second as we take it, they were hearing them speaking in tongues. What, What does it mean that they were speaking in tongues? Well, if you've ever been around Pentecostal circles, you've, uh, you've probably heard this verse because this is the one verse that people land on. They go different places, and then they land here, and they say, see, when, when, when Peter was with Cornelius there, the evidence of the Spirit at work in these people's lives was that they started to speak in tongues. The problem with that is that if you look through the rest of the book of Acts you see uh, basically one example in Acts chapter 2 of the the apostles speaking in tongues, which specifically meant that they were speaking in other languages so that the people could understand. And then pretty much through the rest of the book of Acts, there's not this speaking uh, in in tongues of, of evidence. The Spirit is at work in every situation. But here, the people start speaking in tongues... And it's a, it's a reference back to the Pentecost experience. It's the gospel going out into the other nations, the other languages, and the evidence that God is doing that in their lives is this miraculous speaking. It doesn't really go into great detail of what that speaking looked like. Were they speaking, you know, in, in the, the, the kind of unintelligible type of languages? Was it being interpreted But Peter helpfully explains, just just a little bit later, that the sign that they were now Christians, the sign wasn't the speaking in tongues, he says, the sign was that they had received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the speaking in tongues, the praising was evidence that they had received the Holy Spirit, but the sign itself was that they had received the Holy Spirit, and then they're baptized. There's a lot more that I'd like to say about the Holy Spirit, and that's uh, some sermons I've preached. In fact, I've already preached on Acts 2 and another church recently, and uh, and then the conversion of uh, um, the Ethiopian eunuch where the Spirit is at work. But I just want to unfold a little bit of the implications for us as a church as a result of this story. The title of the sermon is where we landed with verse, chapter 11, verse 9. The voice answered a second time from heaven What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. As a church, God is called together a people from all kinds of nations, all kinds of backgrounds, socioeconomic, racial, uh, national identities, all of these things. And though we don't face the same cha- challenges as those in Jerusalem who, who were asking the question, do we still have to follow the food laws? we're constantly faced with questions around what is acceptable in the church for somebody else to do? What is outside the boundary markers that Scripture set up for us? What are the things that I prefer but that aren't required by somebody else? Or for somebody else? One commentator simply said that the sheet that descends, that Peter sees, is the church itself. There are all kinds of things that we look on other people and we say, that seems unclean. I would never touch that. I would never do that. The sheet is the church and the animals in it. The unclean animals are the people. And this is, again, God speaking to us in language that we can understand, and there's some imagery here that is connected, but we probably don't want to take it too far. The specific example there of the animals being called clean and now they could take and eat... Has correlation to us in the church and the human beings that we would call clean or unclean. We would want to be tempted to call unclean, but that God has called clean. Now, this is a tough thing to even go through and give examples. Some things are obvious color of a person's skin, the language that they speak. The choice of music used in worship. But other things get more complicated. The habitual sins that people bring into the church. The preferential treatment we give to certain people of certain backgrounds. The preferences we have. For interests and affinities. One of the most difficult things as a church, as individuals, is to have patience with somebody who's wrestling with a sin that you seem to have conquered, that I seem to have conquered. Paul wrestles with this himself. Peter does. Identifying themselves as still sinners, having a thorn in the flesh, Peter still wrestling with what it means to be faithful to Jesus, and God continuing to challenge them, to push them to the extent to consider what is Jesus' grace shown to you, and how can you show that grace to other people? Oftentimes, we don't have a clear vision as Peter did, into who God has made clean and who He hasn't. And we're tempted to come to assumptions and say, well, if that person still struggles with that, or if that person does this, that that person must not be in the kingdom of God. Part of what this passage is calling us to is a radical new view of the humanity around us to say, what is the Spirit called clean? What is God made clean? And how can I enter in to those places to have fellowship? What are the things that are blocking my fellowship? Peter, just three hours earlier probably would have rejected the invitation to go eat in Cornelius's house. Most of the people around Jesus questioned His choice to go into certain houses to eat. But because of the grace that saved us and the work that Jesus has done, we have been called to a new life, to be a new church, to foster in a new city that continually pushes out from the lines that we like to identify ourselves with the cultural lines that continually press us to exclude certain people. Story and spirit of Acts are at work in us, it's a good place to stop, let's pray. Father, as we consider the work that You have done in the book of Acts to transform the hearts and minds of these people of Peter, and how Your Spirit is still at work in us. Will You remind us of this power that Your Spirit has, and give us strength to enter into these places because of what the gospel has done in us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Brother.